Our scripture reading this morning comes from two different places. One is Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, and the other will be John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, hear the word of the Lord. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Then Yahweh said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it will be that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it happened that if a, certain, if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Hear Jesus' words from John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord we're looking at today. May he add his blessing to its reading, and may he graciously attend the preaching of it. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this morning we are continuing on in the Gospel of John. And... Um, Now, considering really the heart and the essence of the work that Jesus came to do, what he came down from heaven to accomplish for sinners like us, he came to be lifted up so that all who look upon him and believe will have eternal life. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So would you please pray with me as we begin? Our Heavenly Father, we can so often become distracted and diverted away from the glorious truths of the gospel. And our familiarity with those truths can often keep us from seeing the glory that's revealed in them. And I pray that you would protect us and guard us from that this morning. Lord, the, book, the gospel of John is such a, a familiar gospel to so many of us. We, Lord, we don't want this we don't want to approach your word this morning thinking that we already know this or we've already heard this or uh, we've seen this before. God, I pray that even if we're doing nothing more than repeating things that we've already learned in the past, I pray that you would enlighten our eyes, our spiritual eyes to see with new light and new glory those same old truths by which we're saved. Lord, let us never grow bored with Christ. Let us never, ever be distracted from the glorious gospel by which we're saved. Lord, the simple gospel that saves the one who looks. 
I pray, Father, that the life and the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the return of Christ in glory would be our great hope this morning, and that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may see more fully the great power and, and hope that is towards us in that gospel. Lord, we love you. We look to you. We pray that you would enlighten our eyes. Lord, we also want to lift up the Sean people to you this morning. I'm so thankful to read of the report that you are saving uh, people among the Sean, even through things like Facebook videos and, and messages, using something so vile as Facebook to carry the holy message of your Son and to bring salvation to sinners. God, what an amazing God you truly are. And uh, Lord, we hate Facebook, but we are so thankful for your grace. And um, we pray you would continue working among the Sean. Lord, continue uh, giving your people, your laborers in that vineyard, continue giving them wisdom or to know how to get the message, the saving message of Jesus Christ out to those who have not yet heard. And we pray that this one village where 40 Sean came to faith in you this year or last year, uh, we pray that that would become the normal report that we hear from this people group, from the missionaries there. God, glorify, glorify Christ among them. Exalt the glory of your beloved Son, Father, and let your people rejoice. Father, we pray you do that same work among us this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. 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 In the uh, early 1900s, Helen Limmel or Lamel, I don't know how that's pronounced. James, where are you? Put you on the spot. Limel or Lamel? Don't know. We're going to take our best guess. Sorry, Helen. <clears throat> In the early 1900s, Helen Limel wrote what has become a familiar hymn titled, uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. In the opening lines, Helen captured what seems to be the central call of the gospel when it comes to us. You guys know those opening lines, right? Sing it with me. Turn. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. I misled us. We need to start with verse 1. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. Is that right? There's a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. So what? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. In all our darkness and in our troubles and weariness, what are we called upon to do? 
in our struggle to persevere through life in this world and to endure the deep conflicts of the soul, where does our strength come from? Well, God simply says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Right? Fix your eyes on Him. Running this race He sets before us, fixing our eyes upon Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face from which the glory of God shines forth. That's where we find the light, and that's where we find life. This is how we live the whole Christian life, in beholding the light of His glory and His grace. That's the whole Christian life. That's our endeavor, to see Christ more clearly. In our passage today, we find Jesus teaching Nicodemus the same truth. But the emphasis is not on the means of continuing to live the Christian life. The emphasis is on how the Christian life is begun. You remember, in light of Jesus' teaching on the necessity and the nature of the new birth, Nicodemus was left confused. And in verse 9, he asked Jesus, how can these things be? How can it be that we must be born again? Or more literally, how, can it, how is it possible for these, these things to happen, to come to pass? Well, in verses 14 through 15, Jesus gives his answer to Nicodemus. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Now right here, I think we have the key for understanding how a person comes to experience the new birth. How is the new birth accomplished in the life of a person? How is the Christian life begun? Well, in Jesus' words here, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And sinners must look upon him. We're going to look at this passage today under three headings, and bouncing back to Numbers 21 under this first heading. But heading number one is the serpent that Moses lifted up. Heading number two is the Son of Man lifted up. And then number three, what are we called upon to do in response to that? We're to look upon the Son lifted up. So number one, the serpent that Moses lifted up. Number two, the Son of Man lifted up. Number three, sinners must look upon the Son of Man lifted up. So Nicodemus' question, how can these things be? How is it possible for this, what you're saying about the new birth, to come to pass? Jesus begins to explain how the new birth happens by making a comparison between himself and the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. Verse 14 again, he says, Moses, as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man, in the same way must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, right here, Jesus tells us that there is something in the account of Moses lifting up the serpent that explains how the new birth takes place. We find this story in Numbers Chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, as I read to you a little min a minute ago. I think verse 4 begins at an important transition in the history of Israel, where they are leaving Mount Hor, and the Lord is leading them to go around the lands of, of Edom. In other words, the Lord is now bringing Israel out of its wilderness wanderings and bringing them unto the borders of the Promised Land. Is there a map there, Hans? Do you see that? Oh, no, that doesn't help you much, does it? Um, all right, and I forgot my pointer. 
Perfect. But you see kind of like a circle, ooh, squiggly, squarish type loop there right in the middle. That's representative of the wilderness wanderings, right? So the Israelites set out from that center point and they circled around and now they're back at that point and the Lord is going to bring them around the lands of Edom up to the border of the promised land. That's what's happening here in Numbers 21 verse 4. Now, they've just finished circling through the wilderness and it seems as though the Lord is going to take them on another circle in the opposite direction. The promised land is north of them, and the Lord, in bringing them to that promised land, is not calling them to go straight north. He calls them to go east. In light of the Lord's dealings with them, His leading them on this way, the people became impatient with God and began to grumble and complain about Him. Verse 5, it tells us that they spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of, the, out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there's no food or water, and we loathe this miserable food. Now, if you remember, if you've read your Old Testament, you know that this complaint is a familiar complaint that has been offered by the people of Israel for almost 40 years. Oh, there's no food, Lord. Oh, you've brought us somewhere where there's no water. Oh, why did you even perform all of those miracles? Why did you even bring us out of the land of Egypt? Was it just so that you could sadistically destroy us in this wilderness? It's like Eeyore on steroids, right? Just absolutely doubting any good intention in God towards them. Because they were constantly judging the Lord by their circumstances rather than by His Word, by His promises. They just continually doubted God's goodness towards them and His loving intention for them. Really, nothing's changed in human nature right, over these 3,500 years since this event happened. Here they are doubting God's goodness despite the fact that there was never a time, not even one single instance that they could point to where God had failed to come through for them in their time of need. In fact, I mean, isn't this, this miserable food that they're complaining about here, isn't that a testament to the fact that God has been their provider for 40 years? We loathe this miserable food. Guys, that's God's holy manna that He provided for them miraculously every single morning. How could they dare say to Moses and against the Lord, there's no food here? The Lord's given them food. And you see, you see in that what the real problem is here, right? The problem is not that God had ever failed to provide for them. The problem was that God did not provide for them according to their expectations or according to their desires. He didn't do what the people thought He should have done in caring for them. And therefore, the people were dissatisfied with what He provided. No, God had always been providing for the needs of His people, but He always did it in such a way that it forced the people to become less dependent on themselves and less dependent on their own understanding and more dependent on God. That's how God led them through the wilderness. And for the most part, the people of Israel were not getting the lesson. So they began murmuring and grumbling and complaining. And even worse, it says in verse 5 that they began hurling accusations against God. 
So in verse 6, Yahweh responds to this grumbling and this complaining by giving his people a reality check. It says that he sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of them died. Now, the, using, the use of snakes here is really interesting, isn't it? To my knowledge, this is the only time that the Lord used a snake in judgment against his people. I believe that it's very significant that the same word for serpents here appears in Genesis chapter 3 for the great serpent that tempted Adam and Eve. So like Adam and Eve, who were deceived by the serpent, God's people again were guilty of uh, listening to the whisperings of Satan, the great serpent, and what did God do in response? He gave them death by means of serpents injecting venom into their bodies as a picture of the spiritual venom that the great serpent was injecting into their minds. And you see what the Lord does here when he gives them death by these serpents. The people said that the way of Yahweh was going to lead to their death, but the Lord showed the people in a rather graphic way that in reality, the only ones that find death are those who refuse to believe in him and who choose not to go the way he's calling them to go. So the Lord gave them what they were seeking in their disobedience against him. He gave them death. It's the only option for those who turn away from the Lord is death. Now in verse 7, we begin to see that even as God was inflicting judgment upon his people, he was still ready to forgive them and to show them mercy. He was ready at the very moment that they came to him in repentance to pour out the riches of his grace upon them. And just as a parenthesis, if we don't learn anything from God's dealings with Israel in the wilderness, we definitely learn this, that God is absolutely unflinchingly faithful to his covenant promises. That no matter how sinful his people become, God will never turn his back upon them because he is in covenant with them. So the people come to Moses and they said to Moses, we've sinned, they're they're confessing their sin to their mediator. The people come to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. And they begged Moses, pray to Yahweh that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses graciously prayed for the people. Now in verses 8 through 9, we find the Lord graciously answering Moses' prayer, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, a pole, and it will be that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard, and it happened, according to God's promise, that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, three things to notice about this before we jump back to John 3. Number one, The Lord provided salvation without removing the instruments of his judgment or his wrath. In other words, the snakes were still there. The Lord kept the snakes around and the snakes were still biting the people. You know, the people's idea of salvation here was just having the Lord remove the snakes. But the Lord was much, much wiser than the people and chose to offer salvation or to grant and provide salvation in a different way. If you think about it, if the Lord had simply removed the snakes, 
Yes, the people who had not yet been bitten by snakes would have been preserved, but what about those who had already been bitten? Where would be the salvation for them? Where would be God's grace for those who had succumbed to the snake bite? Or even more than that, if the Lord removed the serpents from among His people, what would be the instrument by which the people were brought to repentance before the Lord and, saw, and, and, and brought to the point where they were seeking Him for forgiveness? What would be there to cause the people to reckon with the sin that they had committed against the Lord and drive them to look to the Lord for forgiveness? God chose to provide a kind of salvation that would truly magnify His glory as their Savior. His salvation was designed to provide new life for those who had been bitten, for all who would trust in Him in their affliction and submit to His way of salvation. So the Lord chooses to provide salvation without removing the instruments of His wrath. So in the midst of wrath, He's remembering mercy. Number two, God chose to provide, provide this new life, this salvation for His people through the form of a serpent. All right. Wow, really? Is that what He did? Yes, that's what He did. The Lord provided salvation, new life for His people through the form of a serpent. Now that's intriguing, isn't it? Why did the Lord choose for this to be the means of saving His people? Why not just have the priest bring the Ark of the Covenant up before the people and hold it up, and then everyone who looks at the Ark, everyone who's bitten by the snake could look to the Ark and be saved? Why not do it that way? Or, or why not have Moses simply hold up his staff like he had done so many other times with miracles that the Lord had performed? Why not just have Moses hold up his staff and have the people look at the staff and be saved? Why choose to lift high the form of a serpent in order to save his people from the, the serpent's bite? What was the Lord teaching his people through that? Well, the symbol of his wrath was the snake, wasn't it? The symbol of the people's disobedience against God and the symbol of God's striking against them in wrath was pictured by the Lord sending these serpents among them. The lifting up of a form of that serpent was symbolic of the Lord removing his wrath from his people and dealing with it in the place of something else, some other thing becoming the object of that wrath. Really, it's as if the Lord's trying to prepare them to understand some good news that had not yet been fully revealed. So second thing, the Lord chooses the form of a serpent. Number three, third thing to notice, the means of receiving God's gift of new life was very, very simple. The Lord provided for salvation in the midst of wrath. The Lord provided a kind of salvation that involved the form of the very thing that was striking the people. And then the way of receiving that salvation was simply to look upon the bronze serpent. Not to touch it, not to make some sacrifice before it, but simply to fix their gaze upon this means of God's promised salvation, believing that God would keep His Word when they looked upon the serpent. Yielding all of their pride and yielding their human reason and yielding their self-reliant tendencies unto the decree of God that said, if you will look upon this serpent, you will live. 
You don't think there were some hypercritical Israelites there saying, really? Looking upon this serpent is going to deal with the poison, the venom that's been injected into my body? Really? I'm not going to do that. That's foolishness. Like Naaman, right? Washing in this dirty... I've got cleaner rivers back home. Washing in this dirty river of Jordan is going to somehow cleanse me from my leprosy? I don't think so. Well, the Lord appointed a very simple way by which His people would be saved. A way that depended entirely upon God to keep His promise and nothing else. A way that involved simply looking at the means of God bringing salvation to His people. And then verse 9 tells us, any man that was bitten, when he looked upon that bronze serpent, what happened? God kept His word, and that man lived. Now, as significant as this account is to the history of Israel, Jesus tells us something pretty radical here in John 3.14. When Jesus makes this comparison between what's going to happen to Him and what Moses did in lifting up that serpent... Basically, in essence, what the Lord is saying is simply that everything pictured in the lifting up of that serpent finds its fulfillment in the lifting up of Christ. Everything pictured in the people being saved through the serpent being lifted up finds its fulfillment in the Son of Man being lifted up. Now, point number two. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, Jesus says, so that all who believe in Him will have eternal life. So there's this correspondence between what happened with the serpent in the wilderness and what must happen to the Son of Man in order for sinners to be saved. The serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Through the serpent, God gave new life to His people. Through the Son, God gives eternal life to His people. They received life, the people of Israel received life by looking upon the serpent. And according to Jesus, in making this comparison, sinners will receive eternal life, the life of the new birth. Sinners will receive eternal life simply by looking upon the Son lifted up. None will be saved who is not willing to look upon Christ, but all who will cast their eyes upon Christ as the answer to their greatest problem, God swears they will find salvation. What does it mean for the Son to be lifted up? If we're to look upon the Son lifted up in order to find this gift of eternal life, in order for the new birth to be affected within us, what are we looking at? What does it mean for the Son to be lifted up? Well, I think Jesus makes that clear in John 12, verses 31 through 33, when He says that now judgment is upon this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus is talking here again about him being lifted up, right? What does he mean by that? John tells us in verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. So what does it mean for the son to be lifted up? He's talking about him dying on the cross. Let me take this off for a minute. Give me a, give me a second. That heat was running the last couple of days. And, uh... 
So what does Jesus mean when he speaks of the Son of Man being lifted up? Well, in John 12, 31 through 33, we learn what he's talking about. He's talking about his own crucifixion, how he was going to die. Now, I think this is key for us to grasp if we're going to grasp how the new birth takes place in the life of a sinner. See, for Jesus, the foundation of the new birth is, is right here in his death. The source of all the new birth saving power, the source of spiritual life that the Holy Spirit applies to the sinner, it all flows from the crucified Christ lifted up to die for sinners like us. At the root level, this is how the new birth becomes a reality for sinners like us. It's through the Son of Man being lifted up. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, He became the fulfillment of everything that was pictured in the bronze serpent. So, are you guys following me right now? All right, all right. The serpent in the Old Testament was a type. Jesus is the antitype. He's the fulfillment. The serpent in the Old Testament was the shadow. Jesus becomes the substance when he's hanging upon the cross. The serpent was a symbol of God's wrath and the lifting up of that serpent upon a stake was symbolic of God choosing to remove His wrath from His people and calling His people to look upon the means by which that wrath was removed in order to be saved. So in Jesus, we find the fulfillment of that call to look upon the means by which God's wrath is removed from us. What is that means? It's the Son of Man being lifted up on the cross. This is the great hope of the Christian faith, and it's nothing more than this. It's the holy sacrifice of God being raised up for the salvation of sinners. This is the good news of the Gospel, John says in 1 John. That God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. How does He save the world? By being lifted up for the world. Just as the serpent symbolized the removal of God's wrath from his people, the dealing, of, the dealing with that wrath on behalf of his people, even so, when Jesus was hung on the cross, God presented publicly the removal of his wrath and our sin in the death of the one who had become our sin. You follow me? Yeah, I know this is simple. This is ABCs of the gospel, but guys, this is what we thrive upon, isn't it? The moment that you and I think we've moved beyond this, show me something new, preacher, is the moment we are in trouble. This is what we feed upon. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 6 when He says, you've got to feed on My flesh and you've got to drink My blood if you're going to have eternal life. Feeding and drinking is not a one-time thing. Every day we come to the Lord and we feed upon His flesh. We feed upon Him as the holy, righteous advocate for us in the presence of the Father. Every day we come back to Jesus and we we drink His blood anew. We say, Lord, our only hope of forgiveness, we recognize this is the blood that You shed on our behalf on the cross. That's it. 
If we're not feeding upon those realities, then we are not living the Christian life, right? When Jesus makes this comparison between the bronze serpent being lifted up and himself being lifted up, he's saying, I am the fulfillment of everything pictured there. We see that, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, On the cross, God the Father made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we would become the righteousness of God in Him. This is the great mystery to which the serpent in the wilderness was pointing, revealed right here in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Moses lifted up the form of what was inflicting and bringing death to the people. In Christ, God the Father lifted up a form of what was inflicting us and bringing death to us. He lifted up His Son, smothered in the sins of His people and bearing upon Himself, absorbing in His own being the very wrath of God that you and I deserve. On the cross, Jesus was hung as God's holy substitute for sinners. The Father placing all of our rebellious sin against our God upon Christ as a holy substitute. Attributing to Christ all the sins that we have committed against the Lord and preparing Jesus to be offered as that eternal sacrifice injected with the full weight of the venom of death that you and I deserve from the hand of God. That's the gospel. And Jesus tells us in John 3.14 that it was necessary for this to happen in order for you and I to experience the new birth. This is the source of all the radical and supernatural and saving power of the gospel that you and I come to experience. Why does the gospel of Jesus Christ have any effect on us? Why does the message of Jesus sweetly draw us away from a life of sin and into a life of fellowship with God? What is it that makes our prayers in Jesus' name effective? Why does God answer our prayers and move on our behalf when we call upon His name? What is it that gives power and victory over sin and the devil and the world? What causes us to continue to live a life of faith and obedience unto Christ, hoping for His return and looking for the salvation that he will bring to us what gives us power to keep holding on to Jesus when life gets hard and the world grows dark and you and I are smothered with the sense of our failings and our and, and we just feel like we're letting God down all the time what gives us the power to keep moving forward in Jesus name it's Jesus death on our behalf it's Jesus. This is the hope that we lift up every month. We lift up this as our hope that Jesus died for us. And because He died to ransom us for Himself, one day He's coming back to take us home to be with Him forever. Our hope is in His death. Jesus says in John 3.14, it was absolutely necessary for this to happen in order for you and I to be saved. Apart from the lifting up of the Son of Man to die, new spiritual life could never flow freely to guilty sinners like us. It's through Christ's death that sinners are able to gain new life. It is through His suffering on our behalf that we find salvation. It's through Christ being undone under the wrath of His Father that you and I are made whole in the presence of the Father. 
Like grapes that must be crushed in order to yield their juice, so also God the Son had to be crushed as the Son of Man in order to cause His righteous life to flow towards dead sinners in the hands of the Holy Spirit. He had to be made sin for us so that we could be made His righteousness. He had to die so that we could have life with God. Now Jesus says, the Son of Man had to be lifted up so that, in verse 15, so that, that's purpose language. He had to be lifted up so that whoever will believe in Him will have eternal life. What does it mean to believe in Him? What does it mean to put our faith in Jesus? Well, simply put, here in the context, it means that we are believing in His being lifted up on our behalf. In other words, we're believing in that sacrifice of the Son of Man in our place. We're believing in all that that entails for us as well. We're believing in Jesus as the Father's love. As Martin Lloyd-Jones would put it, we're believing in Jesus as the Father's love placarded for all to see. Put upon a billboard so that we could all see the great and deep and high love that God the Father has chosen to have for us. Don't you understand that the message of the Gospel is the message of God's love? It's not do this and do that and you will live. It is receive my love and you will live. We're going to get into that in John 3.16. It's the love of the Father that sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. What we're believing in when we believe in Jesus is we're believing in the love of the Father that's been revealed in Him. We're believing in Jesus as our means of salvation lifted high for all men to see. We're believing in Jesus alone as the means by which we will be saved. We are abandoning all of our hope in any other thing to cause us to be made right with God. And we are fully and completely and only and solely Relying upon Jesus Christ to be the means that makes us right with the Father. So it's not about us being good enough, right? It's not even, Christian, it's not even about you reading your Bible enough. It's not about you praying enough. It's not about you being obedient enough to the Father that that causes you to receive salvation from His hand. It is fully and completely Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's faith in Christ alone, receiving Him as the gift of righteousness from the Father, the very expression of the Father's willingness to receive ungodly, unworthy sinners like you and me. It is simply looking to Jesus and believing that the Father truly does love us. And here is how He has expressed His willingness to have us. He's given up His own beloved Son in order to redeem a wretch like us, like me. Yeah, hallelujah. It's the death of the the lifting up of the Son of Man. That's what secures the new birth for us. That Jesus has died the death that each one of us are destined to die in Adam. We are fallen in Adam. We are sinful creatures. We live our lives filling up the fullness of our fallen nature. We simply give ourselves to sin. We drink it in like it's water. 
And unless Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, as our divine appointed representative, unless the Son of Man takes that death that we deserve, you and I will be consigned to it. But the Son of Man has come. The good news of the Gospel is that God has sent His Son to be the one that stands in our place. That's how the new birth is secured for sinners like us. But how is it to be received? It's one thing to say that Jesus has done everything necessary in order for sinners to be saved, but how are we as sinners actually going to receive the salvation that He has secured? Or to borrow language from John Murray, if you don't know his book, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, that's another one you need to read, but read it with a dictionary. Um, it's a great book, John Murray, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, but to borrow his language, if this is how the new birth has been accomplished for us, the Son of Man being lifted up, if this is how the new birth is accomplished for us, how is the new birth to be applied to us? According to Jesus' teaching here in John 3, the new birth is applied to us in the same way that new life was applied to the Israelites. How did they receive new life from God when they had been injected with deadly venom? They went and offered sacrifices? No. They sought to remedy their lives and turn over a new leaf and hope that God would be merciful to them one day? No. What did they do? They simply looked to the means whereby God promised to give them salvation, through which God promised to give them salvation. They simply looked. According to Jesus, receiving the life of the new birth happens in this very same way. By looking upon the Son of Man. When Jesus makes this comparison in verse 14, what's clear is that He intends Nicodemus to understand the how of the new birth in light of the story with the serpent. How did they receive life? By looking upon the serpent. How are you going to receive this new birth life, Nicodemus? By looking upon the Son of Man lifted up. And the point is that God gives new spiritual life to sinners when they set their gaze upon His Son. Now there's a lot of mystery here about where and when and how the wind of the Holy Spirit begins to blow and to cause us to be born again. And, and where is that fine line between being born again on one hand and then actually believing in Jesus on the other? I don't think that we are able to parse that out. I don't think we're able to make such a strong and sharp distinction between the work of the Spirit causing us to be born again and then us choosing to believe in Jesus Christ. Those two things happen at the same time. They, 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 man, the word just escaped me. But they, they come together at the, at the very same time so that in the moment you are born again, you are also in that moment immediately believing in Jesus. So it's like John Piper used this analogy once. I thought it was very helpful. When you open your eyes, at what point in opening your eyes do you begin to see? As soon as your eyes pop open, what happens? Light floods in. So there's not really a hard division that can be made between the opening of the eyes and the ability to see. One logically precedes the other. 
But the experience of the one and the other happen together, don't they? Same way with the new birth. The Spirit gives us spiritual eyes to see. And as those spiritual eyes are opening, what do we see? We see the glory of Jesus Christ and we believe in Him. All the mystery of the Holy Spirit's work in this, uh, there's a lot that cannot be explained, but we do know this. That according to this teaching of Jesus in John 3, it is by looking upon Christ and looking upon Christ crucified that the Holy Spirit works the miracle of the new birth within us. Jesus says in John 6.40, This is the will of the one who sent me, that everyone beholding the Son and believing in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Now Jesus says here that those believing in Him will receive eternal life. They will receive resurrection life on the day of His glory. That is the Father's will. But Jesus also says here that believing is the fruit and the result of beholding. It's those who are beholding the Son and believing who will receive that life from His hand. My whole point in saying that is just, I, I know that the teaching of the new birth can be intimidating and at times can feel confusing the way it was for Nicodemus. But we must always remember that the way of salvation is extremely simple. The way of salvation is simply looking upon Jesus Christ. Many of you have heard Charles Spurgeon's, the account of Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon's conversion. And even if you have uh, heard of it before, uh, it's worth rereading because I think it illustrates this principle so clearly. There was one Sunday morning when Charles Spurgeon was making his way to fellowship at a certain meeting place. And God, in, according to Spurgeon, God in his goodness sent a snowstorm that Sunday morning and while he was going to that place of worship. And he says, when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. And this is where Spurgeon was to be saved that morning. He writes, the minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid, Spurgeon writes. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45:22, "Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth." Now, the man did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. The preacher began like this, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to look. You may be the biggest fool you can be, but you can still look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look, even a child can look. By then the text says, or but then the text says, look unto me, I, he says in broad Essex. Many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. 
You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Spurgeon then says, then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me and live. Spurgeon says, when he had gone on to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Spurgeon says, well, I did look miserable, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, and it struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey right now, this moment, you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I think Spurgeon would tell me I'm more like a primitive Methodist maybe. Because that feels so natural. <laughs> look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live, he said. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else the man said. I didn't take much notice of it because I was so possessed with that one thought. As when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting my whole life to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. Then and there, the cloud was gone and the darkness rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of those Methodists of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that looks alone to Him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you will be saved. Yet it was, no doubt, all wisely ordered. And I now can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream, your flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. My friend, it's redeeming love that we see when we look to the Son of Man lifted up. It's not the Father coming in wrath to condemn. It's the Father stretching forth His hands through His Son calling us to live. The gospel is all about God's redeeming love in Christ. And I want you to understand something as we come to a close. I want you to get this. 
We're going to see this in a couple of weeks. But there is no one in this room or in the hearing of my voice who has a right to believe that this call of God's redeeming love in Christ does not apply to you. You do not have a right to say that Christ's salvific work on the cross is not yours for the taking. Don't sit around speculating about whether or not you're among the elect. That does not matter to you. That is not your responsibility. Don't sit around wondering whether or not the Spirit has given you the ability to see Jesus. That's not your prerogative, and that's not what you're called to do. What are you called to do in the Gospel of Jesus Christ? You are simply called to come to Jesus and look. Come to Him hanging on the cross. Come to His perfect, precious sacrifice on behalf of sinners. Come and see the Father pouring His wrath out upon His Son. Come see the Son experiencing being forsaken of the Father. Come and realize that all of that was being done so that sinners like you could be saved. It's not your concern whether or not you're among the elect. It's not your concern whether or not you can make yourself see Jesus. It's like what John Murray says in that book, Accomplish and Applied. The call of the Gospel is not come if you are sure that you're among the elect. The call of the Gospel is not even discern whether or not you've been born again. The call of the Gospel is simply this. Come to Jesus with all your heart. Commit yourselves to God as lost sinners who need to be saved. When you come to God, you come to God pointing to Jesus Christ as your only sufficient ground of confidence for coming to Him. You point to Christ hanging on the cross as you come to God and you plead God's promise that all who look upon the Son will be granted life from God. The Son of Man lifted up is the only proof anyone in this room needs to be confident to entrust our souls to God for salvation. Don't sit around and speculate. You give yourself to Christ. He says, come to me and I will not cast you out. Here's the question, will you come to Him? How do I know that the saving work of Jesus applies to me? Didn't He die only for His elect? How do I know that I can come to Christ? Have I been been enabled by the Spirit to come? I'm not sure. How do I tell? Well, let me give you some advice. Does the saving work of Christ apply to you? Are you inflicted with sin? Are you a fallen creature of Adam? Are you destined to die and perish in hell? Well, then the universal call of God in Acts 17 is for you, among everyone else, to turn from your sin and come to Jesus Christ. The universal call of God is that the Father has dealt with sin in the death of His Son and He raised His Son up from the dead to prove that His Son is worthy, that He is King, and that He can save any who will come to Him. So the question remains, will you come to Him? Don't sit around and play games with God. Don't don't chalk up your own lethargy and sluggardness. sluggardness. Don't, Don't chalk up your own laziness to the fact that God has not chosen to save you. God will not be your excuse when you enter through the gates of hell. It'll be your sin and your sin alone that's chargeable to you and the cause for you perishing in hell. 
And God stands in Christ and says, why? Oh, why? Why will you perish? Why will you not yet turn from your sin and come to me and live? Why? Why will you hold on to your sin knowing what it's going to cost you? Why will you keep living for this life and the things of this world that are destined to perish one day? Why will you not turn to me and live? Why will you not come to Christ and live? Why will you not receive the free gift of righteousness and salvation that I've provided in my son? You have no excuse if you will refuse to come to Christ except your own obstinance and your own rebellion against God. The key to the new birth is simple, but it's sufficient. All that must be done in order for a sinner to experience the powerful change of the new birth is simply to come looking to Jesus Christ. And when you look to Christ, the Spirit will cause the power and the life of the new birth to flood your soul. Believers in this room know what I'm talking about. God calls you to do nothing but to look to His Son, to look and to behold His redeeming love in a crucified Christ, to see it, to believe in it, and to latch onto it. Now, one more thing. I say we were closing. We are. Let me close on one more thing. The look to Christ that saves us is the look to Christ that sustains us. Colossians 2.6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Wasn't it simply by seeing the great work he had done to save sinners? Wasn't it simply by coming to him, believing that he would, he would give that grace to you as one who came to him? It's simple. It's a simple look of faith to Christ that saves us. Colossians 2.6 tells us that's exactly the same way we're to live every moment of the Christian life. Coming to Jesus in simple faith all over again. When the poison of sin feels fresh and powerful in your soul and you are guilty of listening to and believing the lies of the serpent... This is what God expects you to do to deal with them. You look to Christ. When you're full of doubts and you're speculating about the goodness of God and His loving intentions towards you, what are you called upon to do? You're called upon to look to Christ. You're not called to, let me, you're not called to enter into navel-gazing in your moments of weakness. You know that? You're not called to sit here like this, looking down at yourself saying, man, I don't know. Are my eyes really directed towards Christ? Man, I don't know. Am I really saved? Does God really will for me to come to salvation in Christ? It's like somebody coming up to look at a car that a friend has and holds up a mirror in his face to make sure that his eyes are actually focusing on the car. That's all that that's doing. Rather than doing that, get rid of the mirror and just look at the car. Get rid of the mirror and just look to Christ. Quit looking at yourselves. It's like the Israelite bitten by the snake, thinking that the answer to his problem is going to come by looking at the snake that bit him. 
There's no answer there. There's no life there. The, the, the man has to cast his eyes upward to see the, the expression of God's salvation provided for him in the bronze serpent. Even so, you and I, when we are bitten by sin, when we feel the weight of temptation, when we feel that testing of the, of the deceiver coming upon us, the only thing that we have to do is cast our eyes upward to Christ. And that's where we'll find the victory. There is no life looking to yourself. We need to lift up our eyes to the one who drank every drop of poisonous venom in our place. We need to lift our eyes to the hill of Calvary and behold there Christ crucified for us. So whether you're a believer here this morning or an unbeliever, I call you with the words of the hymn we opened this morning with. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. There's nothing, there's nothing abject there. There's nothing to object to in looking to Christ's face. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth shall grow strangely dim. They will lose their power in the light of his glory in grace. May the Lord give us strength to do this this morning through the rest of the day and through the week. Father, we pray that you would give us that strength. Lord, there is nothing for us to do but to look to your Son. And so I pray by your Spirit you would help us do that this morning. Please don't let anything distract us from offering ourselves to you with pureness, with simplicity of faith, in light of the great work that you've done to save our souls in Christ. Lord, help us gather as one voice together now and sing our closing hymn as a proper response to the grace that you've given us in Jesus. Lord, we love you. We want to love you more, so help us unto that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear and receive a benediction from Galatians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk in step with this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Amen. May you go in the peace of Christ's name and in the power of his cross. Amen.